chefs we the chefs are working together to create a better food, food future. future. I am George. Andy. Tom. From Nigeria. Switzerland. Los Angeles. London. India. New Zealand. Ingredients are medicine. Ingredients are superpowers. Food is joy. Food is love. Food is, is life. life. Hello friends, welcome back to the Chef's Manifesto podcast. I'm your host, eco-chef Tom Hunt, food journalist, consultant and author of the regenerative cookbook Eating for Pleasure, People and Planet. Today's bonus episode was recorded in 2019 on a visit to Royal Botanic Gardens Q with the Chef's Manifesto. It's relevant now because our conversation is all about Chef's Manifesto thematic area 2, the protection of biodiversity which was also the theme of our last season around crops. Before we start, if you haven't already, please subscribe to our channel. We're in the midst of planning our next seasons and have some great bonus episodes coming your way. In this episode, I'm in conversation with Dr. Colin Club, head of the Conservation Science Department at Royal Botanic Gardens Q. Dr. Club is a conservation biologist with wide-ranging interests in biodiversity conservation, especially on islands and UK overseas territories. His research focuses on the study of plant diversity, threats, particularly the impact of invasive species, and developing strategies for conservation management of plant diversity. Biodiversity is really the variety and variability of life on Earth. And we are reliant on plants, animals, but biodiversity in its diversity for, for really everything we do. The services, the, you know, managing the whole water system. You know, we can see links to mass deforestation and flooding in the West. I mean, these big processes, biodiversity is at the heart of it. It's something we should all understand, be proud of and help conserve. Biodiversity is one of my and many of my fellow chefs' subjects of passion. How can it not be when one starts to ruminate on the broader issues of our food system? As Dr. Colin Club described, biodiversity is all life on Earth, flora and fauna. We are part of biodiversity as we are part of nature. However, as human beings, we have a tendency to separate ourselves from this fact. Raw ingredients and cooking can help us remember that we are an integral part of nature and empower us to take responsibility for the role we play within it. In this conversation, Dr. Club and I talk about biodiversity loss and how to alleviate it from an interdisciplinary standpoint as chefs, scientists and advocates of good food systems. I learn more about the incredible conservation work at Kew and the kind scientist gives us some magnificent examples of closed loop systems within biodiversity conservation projects. The sixth great mass extinction and modern story of biodiversity loss are a mammoth, pun intended, cause for concern. However, in this conversation, Dr. Club gives us cause for optimism. Now, without further ado, onto the conversation. Dr. Colin Club, welcome to the Chef's Manifesto podcast. So Colin, you're a conservation biologist and head of the conservation science department here at the Royal Botanic Gardens Kew. Yeah. Working on seed and biodiversity conservation, studying plant diversity, their threats, and in particular, the impact of invasive species. Like many chefs, I have a keen interest in edible wild plants and even more so invasive plant species because of the environmental health benefits of eating them. 
So I'd love to talk to you more about that in a little bit. Sure. But first, it would be good to hear from you about the work you're doing here at Kew, especially in terms of how it aims to protect biodiversity. So as you know, biodiversity is under threat. We're losing habitats at at an alarming rate. So what we're trying to do at Kew and, and, and our teams are two things. One, to try and understand where that's happening and try and introduce techniques to try and alleviate it. And one of the things, one of the things we've got in our kind of conservation toolkit is the ability to collect seeds, so capture the genetic diversity of a plant in its seeds to secure it ex situ, so outside of its natural environment. And so we have at Q this global program, the Millennium Seed Bank Partnership, which is a partnership with 160 organisations in 96 countries and territories around the world, where we're trying to conserve in the long term genetic diversity of all species effectively ex situ uh, and we do this through seed banking so we've got a big collaborative global program trying to seed bank and and in a sense that started as a, a big insurance policy so if we're losing stuff in the wild we haven't really got control the rate of that loss if we can get out there and collect seeds at least if we lose things from the wild we've got the backup they're not lost forever they're not extinct species so it, it It's a hedge against extinction. It's an ex situ conservation program, which we put a lot of energy into. And the Millennium Seed Bank itself, this underground vaults at Wakehurst, our site in uh, West Sussex, at the moment contains more than 2 billion seeds, something like 47,000 species of, 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 uh, of plants from around the world, a major source of conservation security for the world. So one of the areas that you'd be interested in are particularly crop wild relatives because one of the things that Q is we're an organization that's interested in wild species diversity where the interface where we are with with crops and crop diversity and using plants as crops is how do we identify and conserve those genes that might be useful in the future for resilience against climate change or diseases, they're resident in the wild species. And so the idea is to try and target those species, and crop wild relatives is is, is a big programme of ours currently, what's the closest species of the crops we use and can we conserve those so that if in the future those crops, because of the way we've bred them in the past and we've perhaps narrowed the genetic diversity because we've, we've bred it for particular traits, we've actually got something in our larder, if you like, to bring out to enhance that and to provide some resilience in the future and that resistance to diseases, to climate change, to what now is an uncertain world that these plants are actually growing in. So at the moment, do you think that we are growing too few species or do you think it's fine just to save the wild specimens as a backup? Do you think that we need to kind of diversify the food that we're eating and cooking with as chefs? I, I think that's a very interesting question. And I think there's a yes and no answer like all of these things. There are 240,000 species of plants on the planet. And we're discovering more each year. You know, about 2,000 new species of plants are discovered and described, new to science every year. And that's been 
consistent for the last you know, 10 years or more that we've actually been keeping an eye on this here at Kew. So there's more stuff out there. We use quite a narrow range of that in terms of those species. I think there are two things. I think one, there is a worry that we are in some of the key species we're using we're actually using a you know, very narrow genetic range, particular varieties, monocultures. The way we grow these foods, I think, is really not a great thing. I think there's also the possibility of, of looking at more, but I think concentrating on what we're doing at the moment, mm. I think it's important that we look for variety and maintain variety. And I think that's the lovely thing about the Chef's Manifesto and, and this position we are now with the chefs really championing flavour and variety and is that speaks to wild species diversity and taking us away from this narrowing of the monoculture approach and the sort of slightly bland, everything looking, tasting the same. And that is also good for biodiversity, good for wild species biodiversity, if we, if we maximise diversity and maximise use of interest. I've just come from the kitchen garden where Helena Dove is growing all sorts of incredible species of edible plants. And they're so flavourful compared mm. to what you might be able to buy elsewhere. Um, it's amazing how once you start to diversify your ingredients, you're not only improving the resilience of your crops, you're improving the diversity of nutrition and micronutrients, as well as even flavour, which is obviously of big interest to any chef or eater, for that matter. No, absolutely. In fact, one of the greatest privileges of my job, because I do travel a lot with my job in terms of the work we're doing overseas, is being able to sample plants locally that are literally just being pulled out of the soil and prepared locally by a local chef or cook or colleague in a campfire situation. So the immediacy of food as well. And I think... Some of the things that we've perhaps lost with moving plants around and losing that flavour in there as well, as we, this kind of international globalisation and, and some of the outcomes of that being driven by the industry having to get things on your plate rather than the quality of the food and the taste of that food. And mm. uh, so I think it's this kind of revolution of really starting to challenge what we're eating, where it's coming from, how sustainable those supply chains are all of that resonate with our fundamental interest in trying to conserve wild species diversity globally absolutely and i mean it'd be interesting to hear from you why you think or if you think crop diversity is important and how it can help support a wider diversity of wildlife and wild plants basically through improving our agro diversity and growing more crops does that in turn support more generally biodiversity as a consequence? Mm. Well, if I can perhaps give you a very specific example in that area. I've recently come back from Madagascar. Q has a big programme in Madagascar. Madagascar is the poorest country in the world that's not in armed conflict. And it is losing their unique forests um, at an alarming rate. All of it really is driven by the real poverty in that country of people trying to actually get some food on the table. So you're seeing huge tracts of forest, something like 260,000 hectares a year, I think, being lost. 
a lot of that is driven for the wood coming out of those fires to produce charcoal to actually cook with. And if we were able to have solutions that tried to put in alternative solar-powered cooking alternatives that take the pressure on the need to go out and, and collect wood just for charcoal. And some of these are really high-quality you know, timber trees that are, are real keystones in the environment. They, they support hundreds of different types of insects or epiphytic plants, and they're ending up as charcoal uh, to cook some rice because rice is the staple there. People need fuel. And, and people, that's right, people need fuel. Well, so one of the programs we've got, for example, is, is working with communities around the edges of national parks to try and help provide alternative livelihoods to grow better food. It may be agroforestry, so growing plants or trees that they can use for fuel so they don't have to go into the forest, mm. to actually improve circumstances where, where they're improving soil soil conditions so there's not so much erosion by growing a multitude of fruit crops and fruit trees things that have an immediate benefit for their families but also have both the environment benefit and then also linking into ecotourism type uh, impacts as the unique flora and fauna of, uh, of Madagascar attracts ecotourists and so can we get some benefit of those visits going back into the communities. They're using things like local grasses and sedges to produce handicrafts. Is there a market for that, for the ecotourists, so that what the communities see is a direct improvement in their livelihoods as a result of tourists visiting their area? So there's the directly the link made between it's important to conserve this because it brings tourists, which results in some income benefit coming in. So we're meeting food requirements, but also economic requirements. So I think it's thinking creatively around how we integrate the needs of the communities that are around these areas and the long-term benefit. I think in the past, conservation in some areas has got a, perhaps a slightly bad name where it's we establish a protected area and that means you keep people out and stop them doing things and so there you, you suddenly send set up an antagonistic view of what conservation is whereas now today very much our view of how we is working with people it's providing solutions providing alternatives so that we can see we all benefit from preserving these unique areas yeah, it's interesting to see or think about how issues such as biodiversity, which you might not necessarily immediately connect with climate change mm. or these kind of bigger mm. issues, mm. Uh, obviously and completely interconnected. One doesn't change without the other. I would love you to tell us a little bit more about those invasive species that you've worked on mm -hmm. in the past mm -hmm. and specifically any edible examples that you have that we might <laughs> well, be able to my, put on our menus well my favorite one really i guess is from the caribbean i've done a lot of work in small islands um, in in the caribbean uh, two of the, the, the invasive species that are problematic in in the caribbean one is a, a terrestrial tree it's a it's a thing goes on the lovely name of casuarina equisitifolia it, it it looks like a pine tree so commonly it's called the caribbean pine although it's not a pine it's actually from australia it was introduced 
originally as a shade tree and it grows in the coastal vegetation, it doesn't provide the same sort of, of benefits as local trees do because of the way it actually grows and it, it, it ties up the soil, it, the sand rather. It is problematic in terms of its impacts on local, the, the strand line vegetation. Um, and then in the sea, not a plant, but we're interested in the environment, is the lionfish. So yes. this is a fish that's, uh, that's had quite a lot of publicity over the last 10 years since it's invaded in the Caribbean. It's moving up these islands and it's a voracious carnivore and it's really impacting uh, the diversity of the marine environment. And apparently it's actually it's a, it's a good tasting white fish. And so in, in the Cayman Islands, where we, we have some programs, there, there's some great stuff locally where they've been cutting down the... Uh, the casuarina, making charcoal out of that to then grill the lionfish. And so there's been some local kind of Caribbean fusion dishes using uh, an invasive tree as the fuel source for the invasive fish oh, um, as a tasty morsel. Isn't that genius? It is great, isn't it? There are other examples, I'm sure, around. My, my only concern around using invasive species in that way is you create a market. And so is there then incentive to make sure those invasive species are still around to meet this market? And so instead of it being a mechanism of beginning to gradually reduce the invasive challenge, it actually you know, gets into a sort of sustainable you know, supply. These things are always on a balance, but uh, mm. I, I think that's an interesting one. What I'd love to see, the, the other one just to, to mention briefly, as possibly a challenge for you as a chef, in the US, kudzu, which is a, a legume vine, big heart-shaped leaves on it, introduced, I mean, more than 100 years ago into uh, the eastern seaboard of the forests of the United States, down from Georgia in particular, up through the southern US states, originates in China and Japan, where there are insects that keep it in check and eat it. The controls and checks that kept them in balance in their native range are not there in their invaded range. So they suddenly take off. And kudzu is literally like, if you can imagine a vine and you just wrap it around all of the forests. And so it's, you know, there were some lovely mm -hmm. early articles that said, you know, the vines that ate the forests. And it just smothers. smothers them completely. No light, the trees start dying, it kills the whole thing. Now, cattle will eat it. it it's, it's used as fodder. And I have read, for example, that you know, it tastes a bit like spinach. So I wonder, does kudzu have a, an interesting taste? Would it be something you would incorporate into a dish or some of your American colleagues who might be able to access it freely? I mean, how does that work? And are, are there solutions we can maybe try and explore together? <laughs> and is it, I mean, how do you popularise these things yes, as well? Yes, that's right. Like, yes. at the end of the day, you know, you can put an kind of interesting ingredient on a menu but it, if, if it's covering whole forests yeah, yeah. we need to make that a common ingredient that's used in our yeah. it becomes part of our cultural yeah. cuisine even. yes yes i mean in the uk we have a number of invasive species such as japanese ja knotweed mm -hmm. which is it made the headlines for destroying houses because it just rips through concrete apparently and then there's other aquatic species like the red signal crayfish. And these are different ingredients. The muntjac deer mm. that chefs are exploring mm. and, and mm. putting on their menus Grey now. squirrel, please. Let's go. Yeah, I've served squirrel before, actually. Um, yeah, that was... It's actually quite tasty. I mean, it's very similar to rabbit. 
I, I'm a vegetarian, so I want to declare an interest here before we get too yes. far into... Well, I'm vegetarian uh, too, Because so. <laughs> that is, you know, promoting a plant-based diet, obviously, is a very good thing in terms of, of, of our response to potential climate change. And I remember very vividly reading Lord Stern's report for the Climate Change COP more than 10 years ago now and very clearly in there it was one of the first people to say you know one of the one of the best things that anyone can do is just reduce their meat consumption he wasn't necessarily advocating a, a vegetarian diet directly but he's just saying if you can cut down and maybe meat free two days or keep meat to two or three days a week and he had the maths to report it i think again it's how we as scientists as chefs engage with people to say there are solutions but we must jointly take them we must jointly take responsibility for our eating habits for our buying habits where we can not everyone has the luxury of choice but at least actually have those ideas and if we can provide the examples the information that people would take up then a movement start. We all are moving in the same direction. And that's, I think, the space I would like to be part of. And it's certainly dead within Q's philosophy as a scientific research base, is to try and provide those solutions. Jointly, we take them up. And the benefits are to ourselves and our nutritional health and state, but also to the status of our wild species and our biodiversity, which we're all passionate about conserving. Absolutely. And I think as we move forwards into 2020 and beyond, that's what's giving me hope is this kind of new conversation that's opening up between yep. different disciplines, yes, um, yes, yes, such as yours and, and mine. You know, for a lot of time, we've been concentrating in our discipline around plant targets and conservation targets and, and conserving biodiversity. And then the development community been talking about how do we improve livelihoods? How do we improve the overall status of people's nutrition and the status of the, of the world? The sustainable development goals are providing that umbrella where we're actually you know, in a common space and talking about things and, and, and saying, you know, so what is the role of maintaining wild species plant diversity with no hunger? As a plant conservationist, I mean, sometimes you get into the depths of despair, but I actually am in an optimistic phase at the moment, personally as an individual, because I think I do see some changes around. And I think, you know, the more we can engage with people and provide options, then I think people think, oh, this, I can be part of this. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Great pleasure. Uh, wonderful chatting. Thank you. I loved the way Dr. Colin Club concluded our conversation with a clear call to action. There are solutions to counter the climate crisis and biodiversity loss. However, we must jointly take responsibility for the way we produce, shop, cook and eat, especially as chefs and restaurateurs if we are to achieve real change and good food for all. Together, we can become part of a revolutionary movement of change, questioning, improving, and transforming our food systems. Remember, we can protect biodiversity simply through the way we eat, and even more so through the way we cook. Everyone has a role to play in safeguarding biodiversity and in working towards achieving good food for all. The Chef's Manifesto through Thematic Area 2 encourages and guides chefs across the world to do the same and lead by example in their kitchens, restaurants and communities. On behalf of the Chef's Manifesto team and our guest, thank you so much for listening to our podcast today. It means the world. Friends, 
I've been your host, eco-chef Tom Hunt. I hope you've enjoyed the conversation as much as I have. Please help us get the message out and take a minute to share it with a friend or colleague. And please rate and comment below. Your feedback is invaluable. Thanks for listening. Goodbye for now. There are eight thematic areas. Ingredients grown with respect to the earth. Friendly to oceans. Protection of biodiversity. And improved animal welfare. Investment in livelihoods. Value natural resources. And reduced waste. Waste is recyclable. Waste is unnecessary. Waste is criminal. Celebration of local and seasonal food. A focus on plant-based ingredients. Education on food safety. And healthy diets. Nutritious food that is accessible, accessible and affordable to all. Chefs. Politicians. Suppliers. Farmers. Educators. Chefs together can change the world. Get involved. Get involved. Get involved. Get involved. <laughs> Get involved. <laughs>